From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A new charter school in Toyak puts Ute Mountain Ute language and culture at the center of students' education. We start off with a greeting, you know, Mike, the good one, and that means hello, my friend. And then next is Nunanya, and they give their name. I want them to be proud of who they are and to know who they are. She helps kids at Huyagat Academy learn the language and stories that her parents and grandparents gave her. That's given with love. And as they learn love in the beginning of their little life, they will hopefully share that as they're growing up. Educators' hopes for the new school and how the launch is going. If you have a car that you've been meaning to get rid of, just sitting around in your driveway or garage, you can clear out that space and make a difference at the same time by donating it to Colorado Public Radio. The process is easy and safe, and your donation can be handled online without any face-to-face interaction. The proceeds of your gift will help financially support CPR. Start the process now on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. How many beads will you need to cover your beaded bolo tie? It's a question kids at Huyagat Academy, Community Academy consider when they learn about geometry. And it's just one of the ways the academy melds education with Ute Mountain Ute culture. The new charter school on the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation in Toyak is one of a select few on tribal lands in the U.S. Dan Porter is head of the school. Hi, Dan. Hello. I'll let our other guest introduce herself in her native language. She's helping weave Ute Mountain Ute heritage into Huyagat students' formal education. She's a Ute Mountain Ute tribal member and elder who works at the academy incorporating language. I said, hello, my name is Betty Howe, and I live here in Toyak. And in my native Chickasaw language, Chukma and Chukmashki. Thank you for sharing. You're joining us on a video call from the school. We can hear students in the background. Huyagat Academy has been open for less than a month, and it's been a challenge to start up a school during a pandemic. We'll talk a little bit about that. But Dan, what does it mean for you to open the doors and see the children come in? Uh, You know, I was an educator for 30 years and and retired and went to work in another industry. and got a call from some friends down here on the reservation asking if I'd be interested. And for me personally, it is a tremendous, tremendous honor. We have talked a long time with friends down here in the tribe about the possibility of educating (laughs) indigenous children using their culture, their language to help build up their self-esteem and belief in who they are. So that's how I feel about it. I'm a blessed man. There are 31 charter schools on the lands of 22 tribal nations. Betty, what does it mean to you to have the academy open? It's of the utmost importance to have our children on a reservation and especially for them to be among their own peers. Many times we have been bust to school. 
I went to the public school in Cortez and it was a challenge to be native there, to be ridiculed. And then here, when we respond back or, you know, we do something, we're the ones that got the blame and we're the ones that dropped out of school. And, but, you know, there was, it's a challenge here in the public school. So with the kids here, with the school starting here, I hope that they learn how to, you know, work with each other, to share, to respect. I hope that this is a seed that will grow and that the other kids who come here will see that, you know, this is a real school. It's not a playground or a babysitting service. It's a place for them to learn not just their one, two, threes or ABCs, but also their language and their culture. Right now, there are 27 students at the school. It's just kindergarten and first grade right now. You mentioned, Betty, that the closest schools, they're quite a ways away. Dan, tell me a little bit more about some of those practical benefits to young kids going to school on the reservation. Sure. By the time the bus route starts to the time the bus route ends, there's some of these kids that have been on the bus for an hour or more. That's hard on little children. And then so now they're coming into the school and they're tired already when they get there. And then they face the same hour home, depending on where they are on the route. That's going to school in Cortez? If they're going to school in Cortez. So what we provide, what gives us the opportunity is we serve breakfast at 745 and those kids basically were allowed to wake up later. They're allowed to sleep in later, which is sleep is good for children. And it's it's adding some instructional time, but it's also adding family time. Those parents get to be with their children longer in the daytime, in the waking hours, rather than sending them off uh, as quick as they wake up and then getting them home, feeding them, and, and then it's pretty close to bedtime. And then, of course, we are called Cuyagat Community Academy. This is an opportunity. Sometimes parents, because of previous experiences in any, like Betty was talking about, being bust, being some of those things, they, our goal is to have them feel confident. You come to our school anytime. You come through the doors. You, Of course, we have security measures, obviously. But you're welcome to come and check in and come sit with your students. That's a lot easier to do when we're five minutes away. They can do that on their lunch break from their job down here at the tribe. We have support. Uh, If I need somebody, I needed somebody the other day because of a student issue. And I had an an auntie that was able to show up in three minutes and danged if grandma didn't show up about 10 minutes later. That is a real plus. It it, it lets those kids know that we care about them. And uh, the families feel like they are totally part of this, or at least that's our goal. And uh, so those are the practical issues. So there's a geographic benefit of being in the community. Huyagat has woven Ute Mountain Ute culture into the curriculum as well. Betty, what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? What's in my heart is teaching the uh, young children our language. We start off with a greeting, you know, Mike, the good one. And that means, hello, my friend. And then next is and they give their name. So we, we throw in culture. Majority is be, begins with language. What's awesome about this 
getting their attention is the storytelling. And that's where Ephraim comes in. They're all cultural stories. You know, they're, they're given from to us when we were young and our parents, our grandparents told us these stories. So, you know, Ephraim shares that with the kids. Culture is very important and it makes, makes you feel youth when you hear your youth stories. You know, that's how I want the kids to feel. I want them to be proud of who they are and to know who they are. Ephraim Wall is a K-12 student service coordinator. He also works at the Academy Incorporating Culture. I love what you said that culture begins with language. Would you tell me a little bit more about that? Communicating with one another, it's very important. And um, a child has to be taught. A child listens uses their senses and, um, you know, like a grandma sometimes doesn't have to say anything. They just have to look or they just have to use their body, whatever. And that message is, you know, the child will see that. And a lot of times, you know, just hugging means that you care. And we even go to having baby songs for each child and each child has their own youth name and that's given with love and as they learn love in the beginning of their little life they will hopefully share that as they're growing up and so that's where it's important. And Dan, I understand that you have been learning some nuances in the language as well, uh, but that that came into play in, in a recent conversation. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I can't even remember what the word was, and I wouldn't want to repeat it because <laughs> I thought I was using a word appropriately and uh, came in and said something. And Betty said, oh, you don't ever, ever want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, great. The two words that have stuck with me, one of them is off limits. So um, and I was told it meant something else. And I don't know if somebody was setting me up or I misunderstood or I used the wrong uh, diction in that deal. But uh, anyway, yeah, I, I, and I'm learning a lot of, lot of good stuff. Dan, how have you worked with other charter schools and tribal nations to shape Kuyakat Academy? You know, we're part of a network. It's called uh, NACA. It's uh, the Native American Charter Academies, predominantly in New Mexico. Uh, there is a group of the, they've got what they call NACA inspired schools and we've really worked with them. And so about once a week, I'm on with a group of charters that are indigenous charters. They, that their, their students are indigenous. We work with them. Uh, they have quite a long experience with educating indigenous children. And we work on things that's called, uh, well, such like data. One of the books that we're reading is called uh, Street Data. And it's how do we show that our kids are getting the things they're going to need in life when it doesn't match up to this, everybody has to be at a certain level on a standardized test at the same time. I think there's an argument to be made that no matter how, how you do it, these standardized tests do alienate certain students, leave certain students out because of their upbringing. And street data is giving us other ways to measure that hopefully we can use to 
prove to different entities that, you know what, we are providing a good education and it's going to be just as strong as an education when these kids are able to come out. They will be able to get post-secondary work. They will be our school and they will be able to land jobs if they decide to go that route rather than post-secondary based on a strength in the belief of who they are. Their culture is strong. And we are teaching the things they need to know for those other things. But sometimes that's not going to show up on a standardized test where it might be able to in other ways of measuring. Tell me a little bit more about those pieces of curriculum that might not make it onto a standardized test. We heard from Betty about how language is being incorporated. What are some other examples of ways that Ute Mountain Ute culture is part of the curriculum at Huyagat Academy? Um, I've always told parents, when I'm trying to argue on the importance of math, uh, if you ask a kid to calculate the volume of the cylinder, a lot of kids could care less. But if you ask a a kid that's born on a farm, tell me how much corn is going to go into that silo, all of a sudden a volume of a cylinder matters. So when we're looking at building and beating bolo tie or or doing any beating at all, that's mathematical. Uh, Where a bead fits in a design. I uh, asked a lady named Beverly Lehi Yazi to uh, create a bolo tie for me uh, that represents our our symbol for Kuyagat School. And you would be amazed at the representation that she did. And that was all by beating. And that is math work. That's laying out shapes and sizes and counting and all of those things. So, so. By encouraging those kind of things does not mean we're, we're, we're not uh, encouraging learning of math. We're just doing it through stuff that interests kids. It's keeping kids attracted to the lesson we're teaching that day. And any school is going to try to do those things. We do a ton of manipulatives in our math, which indigenous kids, uh, the research shows when they are able to handle their math by hand, they come quite a ways. Uh, EL is our, our uh, other curriculum. It's expeditionary learning. A project might take two weeks sometimes in a regular curriculum. EL's projects take eight weeks. That's how in-depth we go. If it's about butterflies, it's not just about, hey, they, you know, they have a, a chrysalis and then they're born. It's, not, it's just not that fast. It's, it's pretty in-depth learning. Kids have a real chance to read, explore, and it gives them time. Sometimes you go a little slower to get ahead faster. And that's our point is let's build that strong base and they're going to be fine. You have two teachers at the school. One of them is a former Denver Public Schools instructor who spent part of his youth in the Navajo Nation. Betty, tell me more about that relationship between the school, its educators, and the members of the Ute Mountain Ute tribe. We're in the eyes of the community. We're looked at every day and we don't hold our breath, but we just have to work every day and do the best we can here and work with the parents. Dan, what does it mean for you to be in the eyes of the community that way? It's two sides to it, but it all boils down to trust. They're trusting us with their most important thing in their lives, um, their children. And uh, where I see a real connection between Betty and Aphram, our, our cultural language teachers, who are youth members, and and then we've got uh, Jennifer and Eddie, who are our classroom teachers, and myself, uh, it all boils down to trust. And so when some of these parents 
have a long relationship with Betty and they see Betty and I treating each other with respect and caring. We've been friends for a while. That automatically kind of bridges a gap there. All of a sudden that parents are thinking, okay, if Betty is likes this person and is trusting of this person, I feel more confident in trusting this person. And so when you say all eyes on the community on me, I, I feel like a lot of those bridges have already been built throughout the years. Uh, Betty actually went to school a long time ago with one of my cousins and they are good friends. And, and so a lot of those bridges, now we are trying to uh, create bridges with the younger generation that is not familiar with us. And so I'm comfortable with all eyes because uh, we're more of, it's not like I'm an individual. We are a group of really good people trying to do good things. And we are using every opportunity to work with the community, bring them in, and then make them feel like they're part of it. And pretty soon, it isn't like you're under a microscope by yourself. It's all of us together. And that is sure easier to bear than everything on one person's shoulders. It is interesting that this academy is opening during a time when conversations about education are really being dominated by the idea of critical race theory. And it seems like this is really central to what you're doing, isn't it? You know, it truly is. And, and uh, I, I guess what frustrates me, uh, what's awfully hard, is when anybody hears anything that might not go along with their opinion, they're able to brand it with some, uh, some uh, basically words that critical race theory, thinking it is a curriculum, it is a belief. But you know what? History was kind of hard and history wasn't always good. And some of uh, Betty's and Betty, you could share, but, you know, boarding schools weren't always voluntary. They are now, but they weren't. And they were made to not be allowed to speak their their language and not their culture and basically to assimilate. And so that's what is being branded sometimes as critical race theory. There are some bad things that happen to good people. And it doesn't mean that the present generations are that way, but we cannot, I'm a history, uh, my background's in history. And I really believe the old adage, you know what, if you don't uh, study history, you're doomed to repeat it. Well, I went to boarding school in um, Anadarka, Oklahoma, because I volunteered to go. I wanted to leave the reservation. It was another lifestyle, but it was awesome. But listening to my dad who got taken from the uh, Southern Ute Reservation. He was literally taken and put on a vehicle and they, he, he said he ended up in, which is now Riverside, California. And it was a military type of school. And, um, so that, that part is sad. And my mother, who went to the boarding school here on the reservation, told a few stories about that. They weren't um, nightmare stories, but it was a, that type of where they literally took her also. And, but she ended up running away. So she has a fourth grade level education. I think that's so important. And it's so important to hear also how education has changed and the ways that it interacts with our Native cultures has changed. Um, 
As we mentioned earlier, Dan, there have been some challenges since the school opened. Some students early on were forced to quarantine after a positive COVID test. Where do things stand there? Uh, a lot of our kids are coming off of quarantine. Uh, we do had some get COVID tests, so they can come off earlier. Uh, I got put in quarantine for a day. We have some quick tests, but we do have kids coming back. Now, the kicker is uh, what's a real hard balance, I think, is a big deal is attendance. And that gets a school can get marked down from the state because you have low attendance. On the other hand, we have kids that have a sore throat. I don't want you coming to school with a sore throat because you might have COVID and then I'm going to lose these kids. So it's a real fine line. And our parents have been amazing, but trying to talk to parents and saying, I want your kid here, but I don't want your kid here is really tough. <laughs> and I also understand, Dan, that there are problems with connectivity, some that have required a little bit of creativity to work around, right? Absolutely. Um, it's just it's just, uh, you know, I don't know if you know, but the tribe's just been awarded a huge grant from the state for improving the infrastructure on connectivity, because I don't think people understand. Uh, I, I'm When I'm speaking with people on, on the front range and saying, I don't have connectivity, I can't get this, I, I, I think there's like, well, why not? Well, um, we have had our computers purchased and, and waiting for us for a month and a half now, and we still don't have computer access. Uh, they actually were able, I understand, to light our wiring in this modular to be ready to go. And so our, our hurry is in case there's another COVID outbreak. I need to be able to provide some hotspots. I need to be able to provide these computers. For example, in my office, if I accidentally make a call from my office, it kicks me to airplane mode and takes me off the service. I got to come out, come into Betty's office where I can get some uh, reception and reset my phone. It's just it's just funny situation. It's just the way it is. Uh, But it is getting better every day. And when our new school is ready to go, that's not going to be something that we're facing. We may have some speed issues, but not connectivity issues. And that's a big deal. So we're excited. That is good to hear. I just want to thank you both so much for joining me and for sharing about the school. We sure appreciate the opportunity to to talk to you and let people know who we are and what we're about. Thank you. And thank you, Betty. Yeah. Betty Howe is a Ute Mountain Ute tribal member and elder. She works at Cuyagata Community Academy incorporating Ute language into students' formal education. Dan Porter is head of the new school on the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation in Toyak. When we come back, conflicts over the way Colorado public schools approach diversity equity, and inclusion. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? What is the state's most iconic food? Why does Pena Boulevard have a bike lane? And does anyone use it? 
These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Corey Jones from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. The St. Vrain Valley School District has been in the forefront of making sure teachers are trained to talk about racism and inclusion in school lessons. But pushback from a small but vocal group of community members has changed some of that plan for the state's seventh largest school district. Some teachers are left unsure and afraid about what they can talk about in class. Here's CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine. For the past decade, the district that spans parts of Boulder, Weld, and Larimer counties prided itself on its partnerships with community groups. Some of them helped with equity work. They helped train teachers on how to make classrooms more inclusive for marginalized students, such as students of color and LGBTQ plus students. This is not an exhaustive list of our community partners. But School board members got an update on the district's equity work at a meeting in May and some of those partnerships. Ranging from a queer endeavor... CSU, the Salud Clinic, and we meet with them on a regular basis. Then a student group called Diversify Our Narrative spoke. They talked about their collaboration with the curriculum department. They recommended new books teachers could choose from, texts that feature authors or protagonists from underrepresented communities. Last year, the district audited and then updated its curriculum. Part of that was to match state laws and standards. The district's Zach Chase. That includes everything from gender, gender identity, ethnicity, sexual orientation, ability and age, religious representation, all of those pieces to really combat what was a very monolithic experience that we found in our previous curricula. The St. Vrain District is well known for its focus on career pathways and STEM education, but some teachers told CPR they came to the district because it seemed to be an open and embracing place where classroom conversations about gender identity and race could happen. Roughly 60% of the district is white, about 40% students of color. But then... Reenacting George Floyd's death using blackface. That's what three Colorado high school students are accused of doing in this. This event happened last spring at Mead High School. Superintendent Don Haddad issued a statement condemning the incident. At the next school board meeting, parent Trista Gage asked for curriculum changes across the district. We need more proactive steps to prove a commitment to anti-racism in our district. The NAACP Boulder County chapter asked for tracking bias-related incidents and mandatory anti-racism training. By the summer board meetings, though, a different set of parents was speaking. Jen Pekarik. Critical race theory is a hateful, divisive, manipulative agenda that is designed to divide our country and pander to the idea that America is racist and despicable. Critical race theory is a decades-old legal theory that holds that racism is embedded in the country's legal system, policies, and social institutions. Some parents believe the graduate-level theory is being taught in public schools. The St. Vrain Valley School District is not alone. Many school districts around Colorado are facing similar pushback about teaching such subjects. In Colorado Springs, the district has banned critical race theory. Parents spoke out against it at a Cherry Creek school board meeting. And in Douglas County, some parents likened a district equity policy to critical race theory. St. Vrain parent Mike Menza wants his district to stop diversity training for teachers that he says is indoctrinating them. The wokeism, the garbage that is crushing America, we don't want it here. Show us that you're going to do the right thing, put out a public statement saying reject critical race theory, 
and give us confidence you're doing the right job, or else, like somebody else said, we're all watching. We're going to get rid of you. The district did just that. It released a statement on its website, and just in case... We have no intention... The school board chair announced it at a summer meeting. Uh, of um, Or plans of changing the fact that CRT is not part of our curriculum. The district went further. It scrubbed its website of references to institutional racism and racial and cultural biases. And then in July, without warning, the district withdrew its sponsorship for 150 teachers to attend an equity conference hosted by a queer endeavor. Some community members complained that one of the conference workshops attacked their religious beliefs, which organizers say is not true. District attorneys advised pulling funding. Parent Melissa Martyr says she attended the conference as a spy. My advice to parents is to learn about your kids' teachers. Find out who they are, vet them, set up meetings with them, audit your kids' classes, look through your classroom materials and the books your kids bring bring home, listen to the words and questions your kids say and ask. That type of language has some teachers afraid and confused about what they can and cannot say in class. It wasn't just the conference the district pulled out of. Teachers and a queer endeavor learned that the district was severing its ties with the organization through a newspaper article. Co-founder Bethy Leonardi. They're afraid to talk to anybody about this. And not just teachers, but leadership, principals. There are a lot of queer teachers and educators and trans people and people with kids who are trans, and they're terrified. And that's alarming. Leonardi believes the district acted out of fear. It's mystifying to some teachers because Colorado law calls for teaching the history, culture, and social contributions of a number of minority groups, including LGBTQ plus people. One of the state teacher quality standards is, quote, establishing a safe, inclusive, and respectful learning environment for a diverse population of students. Some teachers say that means talking openly about a student's background or identity. The teachers contacted by CPR didn't want to be identified for fear of losing their jobs. Again, Bethy Leonardi. There's no two sides of equity. The work that we do does not harm kids. It helps kids. Our work has been mischaracterized over the last few weeks, you know, that we do work that's not good for kids. Because somehow, if there's work in the district that supports LGBTQ students, the other students will be harmed, and that's just not true. Through the newspaper article, teachers also learned that all future equity training would be district-run. I feel pretty heartbroken by the district's choice to end that partnership. At a recent board meeting, several parents and teachers wearing rainbow masks decided it was time to push back against the pushback. They asked the board to reestablish ties with a queer endeavor. Parent Marin Golden. I was relieved and in part chose St. Brain because I felt like this district was taking a stand to protect children like mine. I know you all know the statistics on suicide for kids in that category. And if equity training is going to be in-house, parent Mandy Bloomreich says the equity department needs more funding. And we need to make sure that they continue to be trained by people who have the lived experience of being LGBTQ, of being Black, of being Latino, of being... The district said last week it has a deep commitment to its diversity, equity, access, and inclusion work. It said in a written statement to CPR News that it's developed the capacity to have its own staff provide equity training. It wants to ensure it's consistently aligned with district goals and priorities, as well as state and federal laws. It says teachers at all school districts got equity training in June, and those trainings will continue throughout the year. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News.
How does the city address its housing crisis? The Denver Basic Income Project has one idea, give people experiencing homelessness money each month. They've partnered with the University of Denver to try it out for a year, and they just began a soft launch with 10 people as they ramp up for a full rollout moving forward. Mark Donovan is the founder of the Denver Basic Income Project. Jennifer Wilson is a researcher with the University of Denver. We spoke about the program in April. This is based on the concept of universal basic income, which gives everyone a set amount of money. Mark, why is it important to you to begin specifically with people who are experiencing homelessness? Well, the first thing I'd say is is we're not exactly doing universal basic income, but what we've seen is with guaranteed income projects around the country and also with the innovative New Leaf Project in Vancouver, it's being proven time and again that this works and it's a better way to accelerate transitions from being unhoused. And so we are uh, modeling on what's already been done and just trying to increase our understanding of how to do that better. Jennifer, I'd love for you to unpack that idea that this is not just a universal income, it's actually a guaranteed income and people will be receiving different amounts of money. Why is that? So we're designing the project to be 12 months and folks will be randomly assigned into one of three groups. So we have two treatment groups. One will be receiving a monthly $1,000 direct cash payment, totaling $12,000 over the 12 months. The second treatment group will receive a larger lump sum up front. We're curious if sort of a lump sum payment is more helpful for folks. And so they'll be receiving $6,500 that first month and then $500 for the 11 consecutive months. And then finally, we'll have a third group, a control group, and they'll be receiving $50 a month for the 12 months, you know, to keep them engaged in the study and to demonstrate that their participation really matters as well. Mark, how many people will be participating and who is eligible? adults 18 and over, and there will be screenings for substance and alcohol, uh, untreated addiction and and mental health. But we're going to be working with the uh, amazing partners on the ground, the nonprofits that are working in this space to identify potential recipients and put them into a selection pool. The amount of people that are impacted, our target is to have 260 in each of the treatment groups, so a total of 520 and then 300 in the control group, but it does require additional support from the community. So we are going to be asking um, everyone in Denver to, to join us and, and to contribute small or large to help make this as impactful as possible. Jennifer, this is a research project. Tell me a little bit more about how you'll measure the project's success. Sure. So we're using a mixed methods, randomized control trial research design. The randomized control trial means that participants who are recruited into the study, they'll be randomly assigned into one of the three groups that I described. Um, And by mixed methods, it's kind of what the name implies. We'll be collecting data in a number of different ways. And so participants will be sitting down with researchers to fill out long form surveys, collecting um, quantitative data on lots of different topics, everything from employment and finances, housing stability, physical and mental health, social networks, family dynamics, you name it. Uh, We'll also be sending monthly SMS surveys via text message. So all study participants will also receive a phone. As part of the program, we understand that this is a critical way of maintaining communication with the research team and asking them to complete various research activities like these surveys and interviews. But we're also really interested in hearing people's stories. Um, We know that 
the quantitative data is really important, but the qualitative data, those rich narratives, that's where you really see the nuance of how direct cash is impacting people's lives directly and in all those um, very tiny and, and major ways. And so we're taking a page out of Seed's book, Seed being the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration, which has released some of their first year findings. And they have this incredible storytelling cohort. So we'd like to replicate that in our study and have a storytelling cohort, which centers and elevates the voices of participants who are willing to share their stories publicly, because we know that lives, they don't change overnight. And it's important to hear these these more nuanced longitudinal stories to understand the longer term impact of this type of cash. Yeah, absolutely. And Mark, you've already seen some of the effects direct cash can have and heard some stories. Your friend Willie Larkin lost his housing last spring and he put out a call on Facebook. You saw it and responded. Here's Willie. Mark reached out to me and told me about the program. I thought I'd be a great candidate for it. I told him I would do everything I said I'm going to do to be a good client of this program and, and do it for what it's supposed to be used for to get people off their feet and back on in life. So. I'm trying to do it the best of my ability, and uh, it's still been a struggle trying to pay off some bills that uh, I didn't really know I had. But during the time that it was weighing me down, it was just unbelievable as far as pressure. I've been praying up to that point, and uh, I almost have given up, really. I was at my end. Mark, what did Willie Larkin tell you about how the direct cash assistance worked for him? Well, he was, um, when I re- reached him on that Saturday, he was in his truck where he'd been for some time, for days, and he was both lost and he had given up all hope. And he told me, you know, that it, he told me that it's, it saved his life. He said that it, it renewed hope and he just saw no path out of the hole he was in, which was essentially four to $5,000 in debt, but just a lifetime of, of discrimination and doors closing and inequity and what all of these programs that we're modeling and what we're trying to do in Denver are showing is that when you create agency and you treat individuals with dignity and respect and kindness and give them a basic income floor, just the basics to survive, it's enough and it works and it works now. And obviously people find themselves without housing or with unstable housing for a myriad of reasons. Mark, why do you believe a direct cash method is better to help people out of poverty than, say, affordable housing programs or food stamps? Well, affordable housing is another major problem that has to be fixed, and that's not, that's not being addressed by this. But we do know from the other studies and from my own personal work giving out individual grants that this has an immediate and direct impact. And so while I was sitting back last year as COVID hit, watching my net worth go up with my Tesla investment that grew by 700%, while people were going out onto the street and losing their jobs and their income, I realized that I was in a position of privilege where I could make a difference now. And I believe it works because of all the data that's coming out of all of the programs that have been running, going back, not just years, but decades. Well, if I can also share, you know, food stamps or SNAP benefits, it's that's one very small piece of a huge puzzle. And As a social worker, before doing research, I was practicing social work and I was working with folks who were experiencing homelessness. And we would find that these everyday life circumstances would come up, like someone's car would break down and they would need an immediate repair to maintain the job that keeps them in their housing, let's say. And to find um, those kinds of flexible funds to pay for things like an immediate car repair, it's those are the things that I think are really... um, people are hanging on by a thread and those kinds of funds are not very often available. 
universal basic income is a controversial idea. And as you said, this is not universal, but it does stem from that idea. Uh, What kind of pushback have you all heard? Sure, sure. So this is a common question. Um, Folks like to ask about so-called temptation goods, spending on alcohol, cigarettes, drugs, and um, and there's pretty extensive research on this topic, which overwhelmingly shows that when people are given direct cash, they don't spend their money on these so-called temptation goods. In fact, research continues to show that over the long term, they actually spend less on these items. So the New Leaf Project in Vancouver, which was also a 12-month randomized control trial with folks experiencing homelessness, they actually reported a 39% decrease in spending on alcohol, cigarettes, and drugs. And so we know that when you give people direct cash, we have data on what they are actually spending money on. They're spending money on rent and bills. They're buying essential medication. They're paying for dental work to be done. They're buying food. They're getting a more regular supply of healthy food. Um, They're paying for childcare. They're saving for the future. And the list goes on and on. So in terms of the, the temptation goods myth, we feel, I think that it's been pretty sufficiently busted at this point. And um, I would say our team is really interested in focusing instead on how when people are given space to exercise, you know, real agency and self-determination, like Mark talked about, how they will chart their own path towards thriving and improving life for themselves and their network, because we see them investing in um, their own families and their social, their broader social network as well. The other strong pushback is on is often is um, that people won't work and they'll stay at home and that it's not affordable or sustainable. And the Stockton program showed that the treatment group actually was 50% more likely to achieve full-time employment. And on the issue of sustainability, I just don't buy that. I think that poverty is a societal and a political choice. And with the Denver Basic Income Project, we are choosing to say that we will not choose that. Jennifer, you're describing this path to thriving. How do you expect the money to affect the mental health of the people who are involved? Yeah, um, our hope is that we envision significant positive impacts on mental health um, for participants. So research definitely shows that participants who are involved in programs like this, they experience decreased stress, decreased depression, anxiety, increases in overall life satisfaction, general cognitive functioning. So that's your memory, your attention, your decision-making. People report increased confidence around taking risks, like going back for that extra training, applying for a new job, starting a small business. It frees up people to be able to spend more time with their loved ones, with their children, doing things that they love. Um, It builds their hope and trust in systems. And so um, we're hoping to see, yeah, really positive impacts on mental health, especially compared to the incredibly adverse physical and psychological impacts associated with being unhoused, where the risks and threats are numerous. Mark, this is a research program with a one-year duration. How are you thinking about that transition next year for people who'd participate when they stop receiving a basic income? Well, I'd like to run what I'm calling a half-life study and extend it um, at the end of the program. I'd like to take the treatment group and cut it in half and continue it forward and do that for five years so that we can look at that benefits cliff impact and continue to show not only the impact within the, the first year, but if you continue and you make this a steady program, that it can um, that, that's, that's where you'll have the best long-term benefit. Jennifer, at the end of this project, or if it is extended, what do you want to know? 
Sure. So um, like I said, we're hoping to understand the individual level impacts of the receipt of this kind of direct cash. So on people's lives, on their communities, on groups, individual uh, specific groups experiencing homelessness. But big picture, we're looking to better understand how to best deliver this type of cash assistance to those who are unhoused and in, just in general by testing different mechanisms for cash distribution, recruitment, communications, those kinds of program logistics. Well, I want to thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Avery. I just The last thing I want to say is that part of what we're trying to show also is that kindness and generosity is is viral and can and can make a difference today. And so we, we want to encourage everybody to join us and help to not only support financially, but just kindness with people you meet on the street to treat them the way that you hope to be treated. Thank you, Mark. Mark Donovan is the founder of the Denver Basic Income Project. Jennifer Wilson is a researcher with the University of Denver's Center for Housing and Homelessness Research. We spoke in April about the project. A soft launch just began with 10 people who are enrolled. By the way, Mark tells us that Willie Larkin, the man we heard from during the interview, is in housing now, doing great, and is super motivated. Finding affordable housing and a labor shortage are issues not unique to Colorado's larger metro areas. CPR's arts and culture reporter Monica Castillo was recently in Telluride, where these realities are taking a toll. Elena Levin has had to face the realities of Telluride's labor shortage firsthand. She closed her popular ghost town coffee shop at the end of August. After five years in business, she says it wasn't a lack of profits that shut her shop's doors. I've been trying to not use the word decision because this isn't really a decision I made. I feel like I was just stuck in a situation and I didn't have that many options. Levin describes the Telluride business scene as an ecosystem. When one thing changes, there's a ripple effect throughout the small community. There's been many changes since the town's resurgence in the 1970s when its main industry shifted from mining to tourism. But the pace has accelerated during the pandemic. Last spring, a number of white-collar workers relocated to their second or third homes or traveled to Telluride to work remotely. The migration took rental properties off the market, driving up already intense real estate prices and creating a new population that needed resources. The rising cost of housing dovetailed with the town's labor shortage as gig workers laid off during the pandemic were displaced or found other jobs. Levin says she faced long lines of customers like she'd never seen before. We've just kind of like gone from being a, a community space to a machine that just has to pump out stuff endlessly. And on top of it, we're doing it with less staff, you know, and it's it's just like an equation that doesn't balance. Because she didn't have enough staff to keep up and because there's no place for those workers to live in Telluride, Levin had to close her doors. Fellow business owner Pepper Raper Cantillo has called Telluride home for a decade. She opened her vintage clothing shop, The Peporium, during the pandemic, but she says she's seen the town change over time. And that, I think, is like the tough thing to realize. Before, people would be like, all right, it's really expensive. We'll put three people in one bedroom. Like, no, you know, whatever. We're ski bombs. We're young. We can do it. But now it's like those don't even exist. According to Contillo, tourist towns typically have booms and lulls in their season, like a rush of crowds due to holidays or festivals that eventually shrink back down to manageable levels so that they can rest and restock. That respite never came during the pandemic. It's an issue made worse by climate change as weather stays warmer longer. Summer has been starting earlier and ending later, 
fall is a great time to visit Telluride as well. But those extra months, like you feel it. During the summer, a grassroots citizen ballot initiative gained support for its calls to cap short-term rental licenses. But one of the more contested parts of the proposal suggested distributing the cap licenses through a lottery system, a move critics say could destabilize businesses and long-term residents alike. Locals like Doug Sanders say they're stuck in the middle. A 22-year resident of Telluride, he owns his home in a commercial space he leases out. As a surveyor and ski instructor, Sanders says his income alone is not enough to sustain himself. He fears the ballot initiative would take away his commercial rental license. I have a property that would probably appraise at $1.5 million that I can't afford to sell. Because where am I going to go? I'm just getting to the point now where I have a purchase. But the only way I can pay off my mortgage before my body gives out on teaching skiing is to short-term rent my place. As a realtor, Anna Wilson laments the housing shortage for a different reason. It's hard to buy a house here right now. It's hard for any buyer at any price point to, to come into the Telluride market and purchase something. We have really low inventory and a lot of people who want to get into it. Like Sanders, Wilson is skeptical of the ballot initiative. She would rather see the town help businesses directly. You know, I'm wondering if maybe there's something that the town government can do to subsidize these local businesses to be able to pay people a signing bonus, you know, something to get people to work and to work in the restaurant industry and in the service industry. Sanders would like to see more discussion before the ballot initiative is put to voters. Nobody's figured it out. But the more desirable your place is to live, the more acute the problem is going to be. Sanders says he hopes that enough people decide to tackle the problem. Telluride can come to a conclusion that is fair for everyone and one that everybody gives a little on. I'm Monica Castillo, CPR News. Thanks for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Allie Budner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. You can connect with us on Twitter at Colorado Matters or send us an email at Colorado Matters at CPR.org. Again, that's Colorado Matters at CPR.org. We'd love to hear from you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.